Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core. I'm also the host of the Popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. His new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published last May. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information about the book or a broad range of other healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we also host the bi-weekly podcast, Coronavirus the Truth. Our guest today is Dr. David Feinberg, the newly appointed CEO of the electronic health record and laboratory system company, Cerner. Prior to joining Server, David was the vice president of Google Health. Prior to that, he was the president and CEO of UCLA Health and then Geisinger Health. This podcast was recorded prior to the purchase of Cerner by Oracle, which was announced on December 20th. Hi, David, and welcome back to Fixing Healthcare. Thanks, Robbie, and I'm so excited to be back, because I guess we haven't fixed it since the last time we spoke. We had some great ideas in season one, but for whatever reason, the nation hasn't grasped onto all of them. So maybe now in your new job at Cerner, you'll be able to make the changes happen. As you remember, when you were here the first time, we asked the interviewees to provide a big picture for how their ideas could repair our entire broken system. But as you point out, not much has happened since that time. In season six, we're hoping to take a deep dive into how each part of the healthcare system can serve as a solution to our nation's unaffordable costs, lagging quality, and growing inconvenience. As the new CEO of Cerner, and congratulations on that, how do you see your company fulfilling those promises? Well, first of all, Robbie and Jeremy, it's great to be back. And I would say, I, if, if you would allow me, I would say it's more than just my company. I would say it's the industry. You know, when we think of electronic health records, the bill of goods that we were all sold was this was going to solve a lot of problems. Now, I think it's been a heroic lift to get everything digitized. But in doing so, we created some new problems and we certainly haven't realized the promise that this was supposed to be. And the new problems are around usability. These things are not intuitive and easy to use. They're not adding a lot. I mean, they definitely you know, fixed handwriting issues, but they haven't really fixed underlying problems of making it easier to care for patients. And the real promise is the magic that we need to build on top to be able to make predictions to improve the lives of individuals, patients, families, and communities, and as we saw in the pandemic, even the world. So I think we're poised now to do that, and uh, the company that I'm part of, Cerner, is totally committed to doing that, but there's a lot of work ahead of us, and, and I would say, and you've made your career on this, we can only do this together. So we need, we need other partners to make sure they're engaging with us on this journey. Let me dive deep into that. Uh, Apple recognized that by opening its APIs, its application programming interfaces, that third-party developers could create apps. And now, as you know, there's a half a million tools that people can use. I personally have seen the same opportunity for EHRs in which hospitals and medical groups could use the systems for the data acquisition and billing purposes required, but the information could be presented on handheld devices in ways that were far 
better for patients' care, and as you say, greater usability. Do you see Cerner doing this, or do you see third-party developers using the APIs inside Cerner accomplishing it? Um, so yeah, I, I think our job, job number one, is to make sure we have a re re reliable system that it's usable, and then particular to the United States, although we we play globally, we got to get the bill out the right way. And as we do that, then we need to get the data and give it back in a way that our partners, these people on the front line who are caring for patients, can use that data in a way that helps them achieve their mission. So yes, um, we need to get that data back. And then it would be great if that data is in a way that the ecosystem because each health system needs something else that the ecosystem could provide them. You know, they may want to build some things on their own. They may want to use others. And some folks are trying to, you know, drive down costs and others are trying to manage populations. And we don't want, I don't want us to be the answer to all of that. I want us to be the foundation that creates the data and the platform so all of those things can happen. So, so my short answer to your question is, uh, yes, we want to be, the same way that Apple opened up its APIs, I, I couldn't think of anything more important than grandma's blood sugar. And I want to make sure that gets to the right person, is used in the right way, is very, very easy so that she and everyone else with chronic illness and acute illness and uh, can, can be treated appropriately. What do you feel that EHRs like Cerner and others can do to be more in front of patients in terms of keeping them aware of their health and having it be a tool of communication between the patient and their doctor, maybe reminding them of when they need to make an appointment or even when to take their medicine, potentially monitor health via smartwatch or advice on management of chronic conditions. Uh, could it even be a preventable health tool to remind people to get exercise or teach them how to eat right while keeping the patient connected to their medical records? Um, what are your thoughts on this? Where are we now? And what would be your dream software or app of the future to really tie the patient and provider and whole health together in a seamless and easy way? Yeah, so I don't think the answer is the app of the future. I think the answer is we want to help create that platform so you can have a bunch of apps because some people want to do that communication and some people still like to use the telephone. And some people want to peruse their whole medical record and some just want to send it to their daughter. So um, I think the, 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 our job at my organization is to help organize that data, combine it safely with disparate data sources, and then give it back to health systems and individuals so they can do what they want with it and create that ecosystem that's creating tools to allow you to do all those things you listed, but some people are gonna want some tools and some are gonna want others. And I don't want that to be my job because I think my job is hard enough of just organizing the records, keeping it safe and secure and teeing it up so others can then use and build products on top of it that you can then pick from. You know, up to now, Epic and Sterna have been the two big gorillas battling for market share, one versus the other. Do you see that changing, particularly in your vision for making all EHRs easier to use? Well, first of all, uh, I said this really clearly to the board when they called me. Uh, my competition is an epic. Uh, my competition is heart disease and suicide and opiates uh, being misused and uh, preventable illnesses and things like COVID. And I'll do whatever's possible to beat that competition. I have tremendous respect for Epic 
look, I've been a customer of Cerner and Epic. I've used the systems. I've used Meditech. I've used Athena. And I would say none of us, none of us, including Cerner, have built a tool that was really designed for the end user, where the nurse can easily figure out I's and O's, where the doctor can find your colonoscopy without having to hunt through PDFs that are OCR'd into some system. So, and, and the other thing I said, I said this actually, my first town hall here at Cerner, we have about 25,000 great associates. And I said, you know, when I was asked about this kind of competition, I said, you know, if my family gets admitted to a hospital and they're on a different system than Cerner, I, I want it to work. So I want all these systems to work. And if we really care about our communities, they need to work together. They should be in the background. What should be in the foreground are doctors, nurses, pharmacists, therapists spending more time at the bedside and less time at the terminal. So the systems need to do the work for you, provide you the right information at the right time. And yeah, I hope they all work and I hope they work together. But most likely, if you're going to be admitted to a hospital, you have data sitting in the EHRs and the doctor's offices. You might have it in a different hospital across town. What's your vision for how we're going to make all this data available to the clinicians at the moment that they have to provide care to the single one patient? Well, yeah, you know, Robbie, and your career was built on this too, that I, I view hospitalization, and I'm exaggerating now, as a failure of outpatient care. And outpatient care is a failure of home care. And home care fundamentally is a failure of loving our communities. And if we loved our communities the right way, that question you just asked me about somebody getting admitted to the hospital, 50% of the time wouldn't even happen because people had access to good food. There was good transportation, a sense of purpose. Uh, we weren't shooting one another, right? So when, you, when we really go upstream, we can drive down the need for going to the doctor or even worse, getting admitted to the hospital. But when you do get admitted to the hospital, the data is really dense. And what you need is data that can allow you to provide the right kind of care, give you the right kind of nudges, and allow patients to get back home and back into the community. And what's missing in that data, although it's very dense, is a lot of that community data. So we're really proud of our uh, healthy intent, which basically is our population health platform tool that's incorporating social determinants because those are so important. Like from my experience at Geisinger, when we said to diabetics, you need to have diet and exercise, if they couldn't get the good food, it didn't matter how many times we said diet. We actually saw the improvements when we started giving the food. And so that kind of information needs to be available. When you really dig down at burnout, what does burnout among clinicians mean? It didn't really start with the EHR. The burnt out was, you know, that same IV drug addict with a heart valve infected is back in the ER again with another valve infected. And the burnout was we didn't give doctors and nurses the ability to get the right social intervention so these patients didn't keep coming back. It then shifted to being blaming the EHR, which, which I totally get. We need to really embrace those social determinants. And we think the data platforms like ours can help bring that information to the point of care. So not only are you getting all the information on the person's potassium, but you're also understanding how to use their social environment as a way to make sure they can recover and recuperate appropriately at home. At the same time, what physicians say is they spend more time staring at a computer screen every day than they do looking at their patient. Uh, how is Cerner thinking about solving this difficulty for physician use? And I suspect some of the same is true for the nurses. 
Oh, I think it's actually worse for nurses. So we, we've spent a lot of time on that and have had some really early success. So just to call it a few places, a uh, banner out in uh, uh, the Southwest where we basically have come in and said, let's take a reset and look at the essential data set that the nurse needs for admission. And what had happened over the years, partly because we were just putting in place the same workflows that we used on paper, we started collecting a lot of information that wasn't really essential for that nursing admission. And yet every admission we're you know, making the nurses or the docs do all the click, click, click. And what we've seen is that we can literally save I forget the exact number, but it was something like 90 million clicks and 900 hours. It was, it was significant change by starting fresh, looking at the information that we're collecting and seeing where we can streamline. You know, the progress notes in the United States for patients are twice as long as the progress notes that they are uh, in the rest of the world, even in the developed world, right? And so it's not like our patients are sicker, although a lot of doctors always like to say that, it just means that we've added documentation that probably I'm certain isn't adding value to care. It actually becomes so dense, you can't even find what you're looking for if you're a consultant or a doc taking over a case. So we're really looking at how we can decrease it. So that's, that to me is just table stakes because the real amazing way to decrease the workload is to start doing the some of the work for you. So using ML and AI to help do autocomplete to help write a template note for you, making sure that we incorporate voice just so that docs don't have to go home and do pajama time where they're spending two hours finishing up for the day at home when they should be with the family. So we're very, very focused on that and also making sure that we listen to the clinicians in the community uh, where, our, where we're deployed to hear, hey, what's the biggest pain point so we can get at that first, you know, is it med reconciliation? Is it the problem list? Where are we, where are we causing you most aggravation so we can really work at pulling that back? Do you see a future where patients will be able to have their medical records uh, universally accessible no matter where they go, what health system they go to or what EHR they're using? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Is it possible and how would we or should we get there? So I'd like to scream, but I don't know that that's appropriate on a podcast. Yes, 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 yes. That's exactly what we need to do. But it's actually more than that. So I could get you all your medical records now. Now, some we'd have to be able to sign up for an open Epic or go to your health system through a Cerner portal. And then I'd go to your dentist and pay $15 and get copies of your x-rays. I mean, if you gave me about, I don't know, four or five weeks and a lot of money, I could go collect all your records. So now I'd say, hey, Jeremy, you got your records. Right now, obviously we need to make it simple with a push of a button, but all those records actually don't mean that much to you. What you wanna do is to be able to use those records so you can find what you're looking for, get the right kind of nudges, get the right information at the right time and share it with who you wanna share it with. So yes, I think you will, yes, you will get all your health information. And yes, we need to give it to you in a way that makes it uh, useful because I mean, in the old way, I could send you 14 charts of your information. That's not particularly useful. It wasn't even legible back then, right? So you want to know, what does this mean? What does this mean for me and my family? What does this mean about what, really what you want to know is now that you got all your health information, what do you have to do so you don't miss your kid's graduation? Like that's really what people want. And yes, I think we need to get there. 
And I think it's completely possible. Uh, I don't even think it's a stretch. When you speak about the opportunities through AI and machine learning, are you thinking that you're gonna have virtual scribes built into the Cerner applications in the near future? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, it will happen for sure. Well, I wouldn't even call it a virtual scribe because um, a scribe is writing down what you're telling them to write. I think what I learned at my time at Google is that the machine learning, not at 100%, but definitely enough so that I could review it, can write the progress note for me. Like I don't even need to talk. They should be able to capture the identifying data, the chief complaint, the medications, the family history. You know, the machine learning and the AI can, if we show the computer enough pictures of Labrador, Labrador retrievers, they can then identify one. And then they can actually draw one. And we can do the same type of technology on medical records. If we show enough medical records, um, not only they can predict what's going to happen next, they should be able to, in essence, write your next progress note before you go to the doctor. Right now, it's not going to be perfect, but then the human computer interface can say, oh, yeah, this is this is actually pretty good. And here's where I need to tweak it. So there's no scribing there. That's actually, you know, actually just do my work for me, because the real work of the clinician is not being that scribe, whether it's virtual or actual. It's sitting with the patient and saying, okay, now that you got prostate cancer, you know, there's three or four options we have. Let's really sit down and go through them, right? That's the part that's going to be hard to re replace by the computer. But writing a 59-year-old with, you know, urinary hesitancy and whatever Gleason stage can be done by somebody else. So that's, that's what, or can be done by something else, not another body, like another computer, right? That can be done. And that way you can get back to doctoring and get away from being uh, basically a, a data entry clerk. How will you blend that care delivery aspect of what the AI application needs to do with the documentation required for all the billing, for the, for the functions that many of the EHRs were designed for in the first place? Yeah, so I think it's a really important um, challenge. And first of all, we, 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 we don't need, if we really took a step back, we don't need progress notes, right? These are just snapshots in time of what's going on with me. What I want as a patient is really a dashboard. Like, how am I doing? Where, where, and anyone who interacts with me should be, you know, tweaking my dashboard. It should be updating my dashboard. I, I want a picture of my health. I don't want 500 either digital or paper records saying, I came into the office, here's what my temperature was. It's not actually very useful. So, but then your question is, well, we'll both, that's how we get paid. I would say that's how we get paid currently. But as we work around the world and our work with the VA and our work with Department of Defense and places like Kaiser and Intermountain and Geisinger, these places that have really bought into the idea of integrating payment and delivery of care, your payment is actually just based on your membership, how many people you got, and maybe it's risk adjusted. And then your ultimate payment is on your outcomes. Well, nowhere in there did it say you have to have this coded the right way, right? So how can we rethink this so that we're really giving patients what they need and decreasing the burden and driving more and more toward better outcomes? And although it's slow, it, I believe, 
when we see the increase in Medicare Advantage um, and Managed Medicaid, more commercial insurance fee-for-service is shrinking and integrated care is, deliver is increasing. And as it continues to increase, it really gives us a way to rethink how we think about documentation in a way that I think would be way less burdensome and way more useful. And then you don't have to worry about that the bill capture everything so I can maximize the coding, right? And so when you talk about observed to expected mortality, it's a, it's a numerator and denominator game. Like let's not let anyone die. And then also let's on the denominator, make sure we tell everyone how sick they were. That's an interesting kind of academic financial exercise, but it's not really matters to my grandma. Like my grandma just wants great care. So I, I hope we continue to see the industry going in a way that that documentation burden that you're asking your question becomes kind of moot because we don't need that. It sounds as though you're describing the Cerner EHR product as being very different than really almost anything else I can think of the marketplace now that it actually will be a, an active participant in the care delivery. Is that your short-term no, plan or is well, that something short-term? Uh, we've not been talking short-term. Short-term, I got to make e my EHR hum by it's reliable. I got to get rid of clicks. I got to get the billing right. And then I got to move the data and give the data back to the health systems. Like nothing fancy there. I'm talking about get back to basics. Um, uh, this organization, I think, um, has done a lot of... Um, interesting projects that aren't core to our business. And that is in some ways made our EHR not as usable as I'd like to see it or as reliable. So short-term, very clear focus. We're gonna be back to basics. We make that EHR work way better, way easier, way more intuitive. Um, the future state is with that data and that data normalization. And I don't think it's just our data, I think it's because people go to CVS and they go to Walmart and they go to places that have Epic or Athena um, and they live in communities. I think it's capturing all of that data and we wanna be part of that where we then provide the information back to the heroes in this, which are the frontline caregivers or case managers or population health managers in a way that they can make actionable insights on it. So that's really teeing up the data in a way that makes it super easy uh, for those users to um, interact with it. So to me, that's the future. Um, and I think we're well positioned to do that, but hey, we gotta get first things first. And that's, there's still way too many pain points in our EHR. So I don't know the exact balance, but when I think of Cerner, I think of it as both a, a major player in the laboratory testing equipment uh, aspect of healthcare, as well as the electronic health record. How do you see these two components of Cerner's uh, portfolio intersecting? So we have the largest market share in the world of electronic health information. Um, behind Epic in the US, but worldwide, uh, we have the most health data. And that is not only a privilege, I think there's a moral obligation to do right by it. So that's, that's who we are. We're also, this is a blessing and a, and a curse at the same time, we're very customizable. So because we are customizable, we came up with a lot of one-off solutions, which was great, but because we're customizable, it's, it's difficult for us to upgrade um, 
the whole industry at once. It makes it pretty clunky. One of the areas, it was actually how we got started, was in laboratory. So when the founders of the company started, they actually started with a lab information system. It's one of our best products. And um, some organizations, their only Cerner interaction is with our lab. Um, Memorial Sloan Kettering is an example of that. And they love our labs uh, situation. Our EHR doesn't serve their needs for a clinical side. So they're just a lab customer. But we got a lot of those one-offs. Um, in some cases, I think we can handle it. In some cases, I think it's a little too much for us. And so we're rethinking about, you know, how do we be better partners uh, where we can really deliver? And are we doing, lab is not one on uh, as an example, but are we doing other things that we probably should say, you know what, we should leave this, this to others. So you've had a remarkable career. You were a leader at UCLA, then the CEO in Geisinger, and then the healthcare leader in Google, and now Cerner. How have you decided to make these leaps from one very successful organization to the next? You know, Robbie, I think it's, you know, um, when, I, when I was at UCLA and I was a child uh, I am a child psychiatrist, when I was practicing child psychiatry at UCLA, and they talked to me about an administrative role running a child outpatient psychiatry clinic that met two afternoons a week. I told my mom and she was sort of disappointed. She said, well, that means you're gonna have less time to see patients. And she liked to send me her friends and grandkids with ADD and autism or whatever. And I said, you know, mom, I think I provide really good care to patients. And if I take this administrative role on um, at UCLA, I'll be able to, I didn't use this word, but now I think of it, I'd be able to scale that care to more people. Cause I had like four or five docs working with me and we, it was a training clinic. And I don't think I've changed at all. I think that's all I've done. So at UCLA, I had the opportunity to run that organization where we did more organ transplants than any hospital in the United States, invented the PET scan, came up with Herceptin, diagnosed the first case of AIDS, you know, US News and World number three. Um, but to me, they were just all my patients and I, with a great team there, really focused on patient satisfaction. It was just the same thing I was saying to my mom, like, these are my patients. Now, I didn't do the transplants, but I wanted to make sure they got information in the way they understood. And then the Geisinger opportunity, I went there, I would say kind of selfishly because I wanted to learn about the payer side. I wanted to learn the insurance business, um, which I did. But what I, the blessing that I was not expecting is what I learned there was what happens when you actually love your community. And this is a part of the country where people don't move and there's not a lot of competition. So these are our people. And at Geisinger, that's what I learned is about really what does community mean? And then we had a lot of data there and Google came, other tech companies came. I got to know those folks. They said, come run Google Health. I was nervous that I'd have to sacrifice my values and Google wasn't serious. Having spent three years at Google, these are some of the most mission-driven people that I've ever met. In a lot of cases, more mission-driven than those I knew from the not-for-profit world. Um, but when Cerner called, it was this kind of sense of, I'm at a tech company at Google, albeit an amazing tech company, that's kind of putting its toe in the water in health. And um, Cerner is a healthcare company using tech. And I think that for me back to how do you scale? Well, 
we got these great Cerner associates that work all around the world and they're trusted by these healthcare providers. And we got all this healthcare data and it's this inflection point right now in healthcare. What if we got that right? I think I could help you. I could say to my mom, I helped even more patients. So that's kind of been the journey. I've been here now a couple of months. Um, I feel like I've come home. I'm really comfortable at the nursing station and uh, been able to spend a lot of time uh, doing so as I've been visiting our customers and saying, hey, does this work? Does that work? How can we make it better? Um, because really what I wanna do is to make sure that everyone in the world gets care that's safe, that's equitable, that's cost-effective, that's dignified, that's culturally sensitive. I just wanna get that care. I believe I was providing that care when I was seeing patients. I want everyone to get that care. So that's been the journey. Google is the world's largest content provider. And over the course of the past decade or so, and I've followed it very closely, uh, they seem to dip their toes into the water and pull them back out. How do you view uh, Google's successes and the challenges when it comes to medicine? Yeah, so the Google message to me was pretty clear, like go take a bunch of people and create a product that has billions of users. And I've never been surrounded in my entire career and I've worked at great places by more A players. Like Google has won the war on talent. Everybody there is a star. And it was, it was an amazing opportunity and also a huge sense of imposter syndrome because you're surrounded by just people, every single one that could run circles around you. Um, and what I started to think about there was, well, I get we could build products that could potentially have the effect like some of the Google products like Android or Maps or YouTube or Search. But what if we just made health better on those platforms that already exist? And that's what Google has continued to do since I left, which I'm so proud of. So we have a team there led by Karen DeSalvo who's making sure that everything that's done at Google on those platforms is clinically informed. When I was there, our COVID information page had 500 billion impressions. So back to my mom, hey, that's a lot of people that we got good information out to. Actually, that's the whole world when you think about it. And Google has continued to work on their amazing technology about how could you bring things like computer vision and organizing disparate data sets and making data useful into healthcare specifically. So um, I would say that it's not really fair to say Google has just dipped its toe in the water. You know, 7% of Google searches, and it was more during COVID, are health related. So everybody goes to Google when they have a new diagnosis, a new medication, and clinicians, as much as oftentimes they would say, don't go to Google. And I think that's sort of dated now because I think you get better information. Clinicians all the time go to YouTube before they take out your thyroid. So where you and I would walk around with that little, you know, wash manual in our pocket, um, people are going to YouTube clinicians to, you know, just brush up on the procedure they're about to do. So there's real pressure on Google to make sure that that information is authoritative and up to date. And I think the teams there have done great work in making that happen. Well, I concur with you, David. You know, uh, residents today don't go to textbooks. They look at Google, they go to YouTube, they watch five different surgeons doing a procedure before they try to do it. It's a far better way to learn. 
And when they're sitting in a situation facing a patient uh, that's not quite sure what's happening, a uh, resident was telling me uh, that she was in the operating room and after a surgery, the vocal cords were coming together in the middle, obstructing uh, speech, obstructing uh, breathing, and that she immediately Googled information, saw a case report, saw that it takes 30 minutes to resolve, and rather than putting the hospital patient in the ICU, was able to sit there for 30 minutes, let the patient go home. We could never have done that in the past. The content is remarkable and uh, has massive medical implications. I'm just looking for opportunities of the big companies around the uh, nation, around the world, to be able to translate that into the type of tools that you've described, the ones that yeah. patients can use to change their life, not just get information about their life. Yeah, I think it's going to be a combo. I think it's going to be some of the big tech companies and some of the incumbents in healthcare realizing they got to do it together. Because like for us, for example, we have the data, we have the trusted relationships. If you combined us with, and you can, you can go through the list of, you know, Amazon or Microsoft, Oracle, Google, whoever, um, they have other expertise that when you bring it together could really get to that promise of what I think we all thought the electronic health record was supposed to do. Do you see any of these companies creating their own system that they would then put into place in the various areas for which they now are gaining increasingly control, whether it's Amazon with Amazon uh, uh, Pharmacy, with Amazon Virtual Care, with Amazon On-Site Care? Do you see them trying to lead the process or do you think they'll be dependent upon the Cerners and other EHR companies of the world? I think it'll be a combo. I think you'll see some trying on their own, right? We saw Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan try it. Um, so uh, Amazon continues to make moves that I think are smart. I think there's other uh, potentials like, you know, the retailers, like, you know, you can't count out Walmart and Dollar General and the CVS and Walgreens. Um, and uh, it's just needed. So I hope the market responds. Um, in a way that makes it easier for docs and nurses to take care of patients and for individuals to get the health information they need, share it at the right time, get the right kind of nudges. So none of us have done it. I keep saying, this is a thing that you got to do together. So I'm big onto those partnerships of what we can bring. Now, obviously the partnership makes it a little more complicated, but I can tell you, having been able to see healthcare in this privileged way that I've seen from different places, there's just core competencies that we have that I didn't see at Google and vice versa. As you know, in December of 2019, the federal government said that healthcare costs would rise five to 6% a year for the next decade. That means by 2030, we'll be spending 2.5 trillion more dollars than today or 6 trillion annually in total. How do you see Cerner helping to lower that figure while improving clinical quality? Yeah, well, the figure has to lower because if you don't, we can't build roads and schools and people won't get wage increases and we'll see a further you know, gap between those that have and those don't. I think it's been the biggest crime in healthcare that we've allowed us, those of us in healthcare that we've allowed this to happen. I think the way we can help, um, and I think you've seen it in other industries, is the technology, particularly using data to make better decisions um, around care is the way we can help the most. So, hey, we're expensive to put in. We got to prove that not only we easy to use, which we're not yet, but not only are we easy to use by using our tools, you're able to care for more people. You're able to drop the cost of your care. You're able to make sure that nurses that are so expensive and so hard to get right now 
are just doing nursing and not worrying about you know working in an EHR as a as a data clerk. So that's how I think we can join the solution, uh, and we're totally committed to it. You mentioned COVID nineteen earlier. What has been its impact from your perspective on healthcare overall and medical technology more specifically? I think for me, COVID gave me kind of two important lessons um, before I get to the technology piece. And the one was, and we knew this, but I think COVID showed the we, meaning those of us in healthcare, showed the rest of the world how inequitable care was that we saw people of color dying at two to three times the rate of, of, of white people is stuff we knew. And this just put it out for the world to see. And so kind of shame on us. And we have to put equity at the very top of what we're doing. So that was one. And then the other more personally was, and I said this at the beginning, I said, this is gonna be a mental health crisis like we've never seen humans by their very nature are designed to be together. And a situation where social distancing um, leads to emotional distancing is dramatically effective, aff affecting on, on people and as a child psychiatrist, particularly on kids. So I know that kids get picked up and identified for sexual or physical abuse by teachers and soccer coaches and stuff like that. If you have kids at home, they're not only not going to get picked up, but particular parents that are having difficulties because they lost their job or because of COVID are going to be at higher risk of actually abusing kids. I, I've always said that pediatricians have done such a better job than child psychiatrists, where pediatricians said, hey, wear bike helmets and wear seatbelts. We know the bike helmets and seatbelts of child psychiatry, but we've never been very vocal about what they are. And COVID to me was a perfect kind of kindling of those high risk factors. So we've seen it. I mean, we've just seen the outcomes now. And I, I think we will see this for the rest of our lives. I think little kids that for two years have been wearing masks and told stay away from people and don't touch this and that, and not being able to read facial expressions, while I agree with it 100% from a medical standpoint, doesn't go away when you take the mask off, right? You have different kind of, uh, um, pathways in your brain about how you engage with people. You watch little kids now walk, and when they see somebody, they oftentimes move away and don't walk right next to them. Like that, that will be with that child forever. It's a different imprinting on how you're supposed to interact with other humans. And then from a technology standpoint, I think it showed us in the United States, we have zero public health um, that's been totally unfunded and not coordinated. And Cerner and others, I would say Google, uh, epic, a lot of folks, I think, stepped up and used technology to help health systems open up hospitals in, in tents, help find vaccines, help um, uh, get people the right kind of information at the right time. So I think tech was sort of a blessing in this, but it, it just laid bare how bad our public health is um, and how underfunded it is and yet how important it is. We knew it was important before COVID, I mean, there's, I, I call diabetes and high blood pressure, foodborne illnesses, like these are public health issues. And, and yet there's no, you know, it's, it's just not prioritized. David, I love having you on this show because you really stimulate my mind 
And I had never thought till this interview of AI being inside an EHR, but it sounds like you're seriously considering that. Do you see, um, we have the opportunity to have virtual conversations using AI. Uh, there are applications that exist right now uh, that one can access. Uh, we have robots that can look like doctors. We have data analytics that can come to conclusions. Uh, how far do you see this replacement of human beings happening with the combination of the EHR information that you have, uh, wearable devices coming into the systems and AI doing an analysis and communicating back directly to patients, not through physicians. Yeah, I, I think that last part is where I, I draw the line. So I think if you're a radiologist and you don't embrace AI, you're not gonna be a radiologist, but I don't think AI is gonna replace radiologists. So computer vision is spectacular. It, you know, it's, you can make better decisions if you just looked at 10 million cases than if you've seen 10,000 and you don't have the same kind of biases that humans have. And I think many have shown that we can improve accuracy in diabetic retinopathy, in dermatology, in colonoscopy, um, uh, in mammography, in, if, by using AI. Um, but it is clearly not perfect. And usually the best results come when you combine human with the computer. And so I do think that's coming. I think it should come really fast. Now, when we do, we gotta be super careful because there's biases built in the data sets and we don't wanna go back to that comments earlier around equity. We don't wanna make the inequities worse. They don't, it doesn't work in all settings, but you almost think that this AI could come out with like a package of food that has the label on the back and tells you this, this, and this. And so the AI should come out and say, this works in this setting, um, you know, be careful in this kind of setting and, and don't use it in this setting. But to not use it altogether, I know is a way to decrease quality because quality will increase using computer vision, for example, to improve diagnostic accuracy. Um, it doesn't know how to hold a patient's hand. It doesn't know how to say, this is what the scan said, but the real decision is, do you want more treatment or do you want to go home to die? Right? Those are very, very human discussions. And uh, the computers that I've seen don't do that yet. What advice do you have for individuals who are interested in becoming healthcare entrepreneurs? Um, listen to what's going on out there. Um, solve some needs, be humble, and take some risks. Robbie and I discussed this the other day, and it's something I want to ask you about too. Uh, you always hear in the news about cybersecurity breaches in health systems. And I have a friend that owns a cybersecurity firm, and he's told me that the amount of hacked medical records for sale on the dark web is just mind-blowing. And that a lot of the ransomware attacks that happen never get reported uh, just for the fact that the health system kind of wants to quietly, you know, get rid of it without any of the bad press or losing, losing uh, patients over it. Um, so they just pay the ransom. What do you think is the future of patient medical record security? Is the blockchain the answer? What, what do you see happening in that space? You know, Jeremy, I'm not an expert in this one, so I want to be super careful because uh, I'm not um, totally well-versed in this. My understanding is the reason that medical records are so valuable to the bad actors out there is not because they actually want to see my cholesterol level, but they can create a... A, a patient out of me 
and can do billing and fraudulent billing. So that, that's why they're so, I think, I think, you know, a credit card information sells for, and I'm making it up, but I think these numbers are right, like for a dollar on the dark web, but a medical record sells for $50 because they can then do billing against it. It's not really like they're really looking at your medical stuff, uh, like um, out of curiosity. Um, so they are valuable in that regard to, you know, bad actors. So the security around it has to be, you know, top notch. Now, as somebody who's been in healthcare a long time, um, and I dealt with privacy issues with Britney Spears and Farrah Fawcett and Maria Shriver right when I started at UCLA, that uh, we had an employee that was selling that information to the National Enquirer, and it led to a lot of the HIPAA legislation. So I've been living this one personally. Um, a lot of times it's people uh, beyond just the technology. So you can have all kinds of locks on the door, but people still figure how to get in. And I'm definitely not an expert on blockchain, um, but what I do know about it is that that may be a better lock. Um, but even with the best locks or the best uh, prevention, bad people figure out ways to do bad things. Um, so I think we just have to be super vigilant and stay ahead of the game. And at the same time, expect, um, you know, breaches are gonna happen, unfortunately. The last question for you. A decade from now, how do you see the American healthcare system and the role that Cerner will be playing? Uh, a decade from now, I hope Cerner is seen as the foundation of data that is allowing doctors and nurses families to be able to access data to better care for themselves. And I hope that that leads to a healthcare system that is much more equitable, much more cost-effective, much more easier and convenient um, and more dignified, and that everybody is applying to nursing school and medical school. Robbie, what do you think about what Dr. Feinberg said? Jeremy, I love his commitment to making medical care not only better, but also more equitable and broader in scope. He brings all that he has learned at UCLA, Geisinger and Google to his new role at Cerner. And I'm optimistic that he will do everything in his power to make the electronic healthcare record more valuable for both patients and physicians. Having said that, he'll have his work ahead of him. In general, today's EHRs are clunky, hard to access, and time inefficient. They were designed around billing and remain difficult to use for clinicians providing the medical care. Unlike others in the EHR space, CERN has been willing to open its application programming interfaces or APIs for others to use. But until every manufacturer is forced to do so, interoperability of data and life-saving applications will be difficult to accomplish and develop. I plan to follow his progress and see how quickly he can evolve the current EHR system into one that is more reliable and more user-friendly, hopefully including voice recognition for scribing purposes. But as he said, the real opportunities will come after that with application of artificial intelligence, algorithmic care support, and patient empowerment. Until that time, the technology will fail to fulfill its potential. 
But if there's anywhere in the industry capable of advancing the field and focusing it on maximizing the health of the patient, it is David. I always leave our interviews with Dr. Feinberg optimistic for the future, and today was no exception. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on physician culture, you can find it at robertperlmd.com. Congratulations, Robbie, on the success of your recent book. I know it will stimulate discussion and debate and improve healthcare for all Americans. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.